One, two, three, and we're live. Um, I'm sitting here with Dr. James Lockhart. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Uh, very, very well. Thank you. Um, really looking forward to this podcast. And I was really bummed we had to postpone last week, but I'm finally happy we did this. And uh, yeah, let's just start off with a brief introduction to yourself. Um, how you, what, what do you teach? How do you get into it? How you got to Dubai? Okay. I'm a historian of American foreign relations. I specialize in U.S. Latin American relations. I have Spanish-speaking area expertise, uh, particularly in Southern South America, Chile, Argentina, Brazil. Uh, within that area, I also specialize in security and intelligence studies. I write okay. the history of intelligence, um, mostly the CIA, but I've been getting into the history of the Cuban intelligence service lately. Uh, just to see how far the sources will take me. Also, very uh, interesting into that field. And how how did you get into intelligence studies? How did that journey start? Uh, it started. I shifted from studying the history of Latin America to the history of American foreign relations. And okay. when I got into um, that field, it, it it seemed to me that there was an imbalance. Some of the historians who specialize <clears throat> in Latin America were really exaggerating the American role in that part of the world. And it seems okay. to me that the historians of American foreign relations didn't have a, a complete understanding of Latin America. So I wanted to come in the middle of that. Okay. So do you get into intelligence studies after you already got your doctorate in Latin, like Latin? No, no. no. Okay. Uh, I was into intelligence studies by the time I was finishing my master's thesis. Okay. Uh, so my master's thesis is on the history of CIA sponsored covert operations in Latin America. Okay. Fine. And what, why did you get into history in general? What was your love of history and all this? Oh, that's a good uh, question. Uh, history is just a discipline that appeals to me. It's something that I'm good at. I've been good at since high school. I had a teacher who may listen to this, uh, Pete Rehas. Right. Uh, shout inspired out, shout me, out. Who, yeah, <laughs> uh, he's retired now, but we're still in touch. Yeah, he inspired me in the field. Others that I've met when I was a student in college also inspired me. And I just... I, you go into studying something that you love. That's one way to choose okay. a career. So where do you get your bachelor's degree from? University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Okay. Oh, and you got that in history? Yes. No, Latin American Latin, studies, okay, Latin which American is part studies. history, but part political science and part Spanish. And then why did you choose Latin American? Um, I had been a musician in high school. <clears throat> what kind of music? Uh, jazz mostly, but I was also into Saxophone? No, no, I played guitar. Okay, awesome. I, guitar. Okay. I was into all kinds of music, but I love jazz. My jazz um, um, fascination got me into some people like Pat Metheny, okay. uh, who were mixing Brazilian music and uh, other music okay, from around the world. And uh, when I just picked a region, it was kind of like go... Okay. Go to a region that interests you. And I, I remember <laughs> that I, I really love music from Brazil and the Caribbean. And so right, I cool. chose Latin America. So was, you got your bachelor's When did you complete your bachelor's degree? 1997. Okay. And then did you go right into your master's degree? Um, I did some travel. Okay. Uh, no, actually, right after my bachelor's degree, I did do my master's degree. I right did away. start that. That's right. Did you so, travel to Latin America while you were studying? I traveled in a study abroad program as an undergraduate. And okay. I also Where took to? some time to Chile. Awesome. I was okay. in Chile for a year. Awesome. How was that? It was great. I so love the country. This was from between 1997 and like 2000? In 1997. Okay. In 1998 and 1999, I went back to Brazil. Okay. In Chile, do you speak Spanish, Portuguese? Spanish. Okay. And you fluent? Fluent is a strong word. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> as an historian, I read the language. I can, <coughs> I can read the language very well. Okay. Uh, when I speak, it's very clear that I'm a gringo okay. before three words <laughs> are out of my mouth. Was it easy navigating through Chile? During the late 90s? As yeah. an American? 
Yeah. Who, um, didn't, who didn't speak the language as well as the natives. Well, Chile, like a lot of places in the world, it's been going through a lot of modernization, yeah. globalization. The infrastructure okay. there is very familiar to me as an American. The okay. metros, the subways, the streets, the people, the businesses, okay. the movie theaters, the malls. It's all, right, it's all very, very And familiar. what university were you studying there? University? Uh, I was at the Universidad Andres Bello, which okay, is... There, there are a lot of universities in Chile. Right, cool. the, the great ones there would be the Catholic okay, cool. University and the University of Chile. Okay. Uh, and a couple of others. Interesting. So you, did you do your master's degree also in Las Vegas? I did my master's degree in San Diego. San Diego. Okay. SDSU? And and, yeah, SDSU. Awesome. Okay, cool. Right. Um, the San Diego State University, whoever doesn't know. And it was also in Latin American history? That was Latin American history. I okay. started off being interested in pre-Columbian or pre-Hispanic. Okay. Uh, and uh, people told me it wouldn't work. I didn't want to believe them it wouldn't work, but I found out that it okay. doesn't quite work. And when we I say Latin American history, what time period are we looking at? For me or for the field? During your study, um, your, your, your focus. Okay, for my focus, I focus on modern Latin America, which would be from the time that Latin Americans started achieving independence, uh, early 19th century up okay. to the present. Did you delve into like much older history than that? We're talking about like kind of... I, I my interest in Latin America goes pretty deep. I, okay. I can go back to the um, Chavin okay. cultures or uh, the Olmec uh, in Mexico in a, in a survey fashion. I'm not an okay, expert okay. in these things, but the whole region's history from settlement to the present has always fascinated me. All right, cool. So then you finish your master's degree. How long was that? Two years? Was a two year program? Two year program plus a couple more years to write the thesis. The thesis. And what was your thesis? The first thesis was. The first attempt to write the okay. thesis was going to be on pre-Hispanic. Pre uh, and then okay. when that didn't work out, I shifted to American foreign relations and intelligence. Yeah. So where did that shift happen? How did it happen? So because you go from more, you know, um, Hispanic, Latin American history and you shift now towards now. Look, where did that? Interest? It happened when it, it just dawned on me that I was forcing the pre-Hispanic thesis too much. Okay, it wasn't coming naturally. It wasn't working. It wasn't there. It wasn't going okay. to be. And there was a divergence between what I had in mind and what uh, uh, the professor who was advising me had in mind. And there's a reason that there aren't historians who specialize in pre-Hispanic Latin America. Okay. Uh, the sources aren't really there. It's mostly colonial and Interesting. and modern. Uh, and I went to something that I knew that I had experience with and that I was also very interested in. There was yeah. a, some historians there who were very, very... Um, influential in the field okay. of foreign relations and, okay. and intelligence and I shifted uh, in that direction. Did you have any pre-master degree interest in that subject? Like were you just always curious about things that do, like the intelligence study field? Yeah, we're well, going to school in the late 1990s uh, and specializing in Latin America. Uh, you know, there were a lot of issues that came up in U.S.-Cuban okay. relations, okay. Brothers to the Rescue, the Helms-Burton Act. Uh, and so there was always an interest in modern U.S.-Latin American relations. Anyone who studies Latin American history will, will have some sort of a side interest or an opinion okay. on the history of U.S.-Latin American relations. Okay, that's cool. So you, you, throughout your studies, you obviously were studying during the 9-11 crisis, right? How, did that impact your studying or... I was in Chile on 9-11. Okay, okay, you were. I was in Chile and, okay. and a friend called me and woke me up and said, turn on the TV. Wow. And I thought it was a Bruce Willis movie until I saw it replayed again and again. Wow. And I thought, wow, this was this is real. Almost, yeah. I find 9-11 one of those things that no matter who you ask, they'll remember what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. It was one of those global things yeah. that everyone remembers. Like I remember I was sleeping. I heard like my sister yelling, calling me down. I ran down. I was, I was in Lebanon and I was watching TV. And I was like, wow, what a shock. It took me about 10 minutes to believe that this yeah, is a real thing. It does. 
And then when the second plane hit, I thought, oh, you wow. know, something has horrible. really changed here in the world. Yeah, was, absolutely horrible. So did that, yeah. do you feel that impacted your, um, what's the word I'm looking for, your resolve to continue in that field? Did that have any impact on you in terms of your studying? No, my I was fully interested in okay. and committed to this career before that. Okay. That, um, you know, it was, I, I don't think there's any major in, influence that that event had on my life. No. Okay, fair enough. Okay, cool. So then you finished your master's degree, was it 2003, 2004? Five. Awesome. And then you jump right into your PhD? Yeah. Uh, which university? University of Arizona. All right. Tucson, awesome. Arizona. Okay, great university. Never been, but I heard good things. It's great. Yeah. And and then your complete focus was intelligence studies at that point? I, I have a, a broad focus. My focus was okay. the history of American foreign relations. Okay. Uh, behind that, world affairs or world history, global and comparative history. Okay. And within that, uh, security and intelligence. Okay. And how long were you doing? How long is the PhD program? Uh, it's four years of coursework. Okay. Um, and then two, three years of dissertating. Cool. And what was your dissertation? What was the title of dissertation? Uh, it's coming out in a forthcoming book now. The title okay. was called Reimagining Chile's Cold War Experience. Of okay. The dissertation. Did, do you, did you have to have like a jury and have to defend your publication? Yeah. You have okay. a committee. A you committee. committee. Okay. You have a, uh, a chair, a director, someone you work closely with. Uh, you shape up what it's going to be. You make a plan. Uh, you submit draft to them. Okay. Uh, and then there, there's a, uh, it's not a jury. It's just a committee okay, fine, of uh, three or four. Okay. I have four. No, I'm asking because when I was doing my master's degree, because business is different, you have to have a case study and you have to present it, defend it in front of a jury. Right. There was a defense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, later and this was there was a public defense and then a private okay. defense at the University of Arizona. Okay, cool And so has your dissertation been officially published or that's gonna be officially published in your book coming up? Uh, dissertations are never published. They're put up online. I yeah. think it's ProQuest or something ProQuest like dissertations um, And the University of Arizona has a copy of it as well. I gave copies to yeah. um, My advisors and some of the some of the institutions that supported me with grants. I've mailed copies of this to them as well okay um the the book is publishing with edinburgh university is this your first book it is okay and um when's that coming out just so we next know. year next april uh, okay, april so 2019 q2 2019 yeah awesome are you co-writing or is this your, it's me just it's you. all me awesome and um why don't I want to, so that's basically a recap on all that so let's just jump right in can you give me a brief introduction definition of what intelligence studies is um, how does field come into play? Uh, the, what are the different focus points? Okay. Because for me, when I hear intelligence studies, your mind goes in so many different directions. All right. Usually it's it's security and intelligence studies. Security and intelligence. But right. it could also be intelligence history. This, okay. this field, this interest in intelligence, um, national security would be another way of thinking about it. Uh, global security, human security is becoming. Uh, goes back uh, far uh, in world history. You can find Chinese like Sun Tzu writing about it in a professional way Okay, millennia ago. Wow. Um, for us in the U.S. and the, um, you know, the British world, it's something that's post-war. It's, it's Cold War era. Okay, um, post-World War II. It, yeah, and it comes with the emergence of the bureaucracy of the intelligence community okay. uh, and a renewed interest in um, studying declassified documents that became available on the intelligence services, which are uniquely in the U.S. and Britain right now. Would you say... <clears throat> because you said it, it really emerged after World War II. It would have to do with all the covert operations that had to go on, all those um, 
all the spying going on during that time that really pushed the nations to really dive into, into this. Yeah, it's uh, after, you know, during the Second World War, really. But yeah. after the, in the Cold War is when they became bureaucratized, they became institutionalized, they became uh, a permanent fixture. So, so did the CIA not exist before World War Two? No, there was no CIA. Was general. there any kind of secret organization? or something? In World War Two, there was the Office of Strategic Services. That's okay. just about three years during the war itself. So pr prior to that, there was no kind of governmental Well, there's no, there, there was, but there wasn't any centralized national intelligence service doing <clears throat> the production of national intelligence or the like. There were... Uh, Intelligence services in the Navy, the Office of Naval okay. Intelligence, the Army's Military yeah. Intelligence Division. Okay, there so was code breaking those. for a time yeah. uh, in the Department of State. Um, but no, nothing that was permanent and sustained like what but happened. But the other the nations involved the war, they had their secret organization. Like MI6 was existing, right? Um, MI5, MI6 are World War One era. I, I'm okay. not an expert in these things, but okay. these are all nothing really was occurring systematically before the late 19th century. But there century. was some kind of semblance of an of a organization in the other nations that were participating. in. People were practicing it. Like okay. I, I cited Sun Tzu before. People were doing yeah, these yeah. things, looking for information but, on others or trying no to influence protocols. events. But it, it wasn't bureaucratized. It wasn't an institutional <clears throat> profession okay. with people who were studying the stuff and, and, and training in it. All right. Did the Russians have the KGB at that point? No, they had the Cheka before that. They okay. had... The Russians went through several phases before they got to the KGB. All right. So now we're post-World War II. Um, there's a need for this on a national level. Let's take the U.S. national level. Who in the U.S. Um, instigated or implemented the, 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 I don't know, the secret service organization? Sorry, the CIA or... How, how did that start post-World War II? Well, that was President Harry Truman, Truman uh, in okay. Congress. But it, it, it came about by general consensus that okay. we need to be... Um, engaging in the collection and analysis of intelligence all right cool so then so consensus and then obviously truman's leading it i suppose or in support and then yeah. how how does this actual cia get founded uh it's founded by an act of congress the national okay. security act of 1947 okay it evolves from there through uh additional acts but also through executive oversight and um from the actual input of people who led the CIA and people who worked in the CIA also that that's some of the stuff that I've written on gets into this how these people have have shaped and defined and redefined and contested the meaning of the CIA since 1947 all right what would you say would be the most pivotal um influ uh, influential person that basically was it Hoover you would say for the CIA yeah you mean J Edgar Hoover yeah that's FBI that's FBI uh, but yeah he's he's probably okay. the most pivotal one for the FBI okay um there's a collection of people for the CIA, um, and you'd have to start with the OSS, but it's uh, Wild Bill Donovan during okay. the war, uh, Alan Dulles, um, I think Lieutenant General Walter Beadle Smith, very underrated, very influential in institutionalizing the CIA uh, and the estimate system to begin with, um, and several others since then have, have come and gone. So let's go. Just go, let's just recap really quickly. So we said the, the the official formation by Congress was what year? September 1947. 1947. And then how did it grow to reach how it is today? Because obviously, I'm sure there's been an evolution of the CIA, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't need to go through the whole thing because I'm sure it's a, it's a massive conversation. It what, is. What milestones would you would you say helped define to reach the CIA as it is today? Okay. Um, there are journalists okay. like Mark Mazzetti at the New York Times okay. who are 
very knowledgeable of the CIA now, post 9-11, the war on terror. Yeah. Uh, I studied the CIA as an historian uh, okay. with interest in the Cold War. Okay. So my answer to that question comes from uh, a point of view in time. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you have to start off before answering that question by appreciating that the whole history of the CIA, really from the beginning up to today, is the history of a, of a struggle. Okay. And it's partly an internal struggle, but it's also a struggle in Washington, D.C. at large over what the CIA should be, what the service should should do okay. and how it should operate. So you have one tendency uh, that would focus on the production of national intelligence, the gathering of information, the collation and the analysis of this information, trying to reduce uncertainty in world affairs so okay. that policymakers can make clear Okay. Decisions, and then there's the other tendency, uh, which thinks it should be like a fighting intelligence service. It should be about covert operations. Like what we see in the movies, like what you see in the movies, exactly. Uh, Mission Impossible. Right? Okay, it should be something like this. So when it was first formed, 1947, right? What was the original mandate of the CIA? At that it, point? it stressed the okay. production of national intelligence. It had a clause in there okay. that said, and to do other things. That the national was security it left vague on purpose. It was left very. It was left vague on purpose. The people who put that in there wrote it vaguely on purpose. They didn't want it advertised uh, and and you know explicitly put on paper that they were thinking of covert operations because the, if they did, then these operations wouldn't be deniable. They wouldn't be covert anymore. Interesting. And and on the uh, during during that decision, nineteen forty seven was the hierarchy of the of the CIA also um, put into place, and is, is that the same hierarchy as exists today? Um, Sort of, okay. but the hierarchy was a mess uh, between 1947 and about 1950. Because it was kind of like learn as we go kind of thing? That, and there's a lot of bureaucratic conflict okay. in D.C. You have people in the Department of State, people in the various armed forces, people in the CIA uh, who are fighting turf wars over who's going to be in charge of what, who reports to the president, uh, and who can control which information like signals intelligence or communications okay. intercepts, which the military likes to keep very closely um, uh, con concealed. And was there any part within that mandate where the president should not know about these specific kind of things? or Because obviously there has to be a level of deniability. So is, is, does the president have that level of deniability or does he um, get all information done? Everything done by CIA is passed on to the president. Legally so. Okay, legally. the United States thinks in legal terms for these okay. things. So they're not thinking about reality. Okay. Uh, legally, the president is not to know about covert operations, is to be uh, not involved in them, or to not have his name or her name okay. associated with their creation. Will falsify in real life, operations fall in that? No, they don't falsify. Okay. Okay. But in real life, everyone knows that okay. none of these operations go without presidential authority. Okay, so it's not like in the movies where there's like some guy, sometimes the Secretary of Defense or some guy who knows everything but there's some things he passes on to the president, right? Does that actually exist? Um, and would we ever when you put it, it when you put it that way, I think probably up and down the whole chain of command, especially in uh, the intelligence community, there may be some of that going on with um, uh, with things not always getting passed along, especially when you're dealing with people succeeding uh, other people in office. Um, yeah, that's true. But the part about somebody in government. Yeah. Lying to and and doing something that the president doesn't know about or doesn't authorize that that's false. That's, okay, that, okay. that doesn't happen. Okay, fine, but what enough. you raised was a more subtle point, and I think there's a lot to that. Yes, interesting. Because look, obviously, I'm I'm your average Joe when it comes to this topic, right? Um, while you're the expert, so for people like me, we literally think whatever we see in movies and shows, 
right? Yes. There's all this stuff going on in the background. Yeah. Some people know, some people don't. Yeah. Some stuff is going on, funded by some guy who's hidden in the in the in the like you know hidden in the in the let's call it, in the darkness, and no one knows who he is. Yeah. And and then and the the American people are completely have no idea. Is it possible that there is stuff going on you just will never know about? Is that even possible, or is that not likely? Uh, I well, I think indeed. There are things that have okay. gone on that we don't know about and won't okay. know about. We don't we don't see everything. I deal with declassified, declassified. papers. And what's the, what's the there's a specific number of years before uh, something gets declassified, right? What's Thirty. Thirty years. Yes. Does that apply to everything? In theory, yes. In practice, uh, you would know. Some things stretch out. There are you know the the papers on U.S. involvement in the Iranian coup of 1953 took a uh, long time okay, to come fine. out. Okay, is that um, what they 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 put in uh, the Shah of Iran, right? That's they, what they put him in power. They supported the Shah. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. They supported the Shah, and who who did they who did they help? Mossadegh, Mossadegh. Uh, Mohammed Mohammed Mahmoud Mossadegh. Yeah, yeah. yeah, interesting. But there's been a lot of cases like that, right? Where there's been quote unquote some kind of CIA hand in well, overthrowing someone to put it. There in have been many covert operations. Yes. Okay, but you focus specifically on that Cold War period. Is that yes. what your area of yeah. focus? Okay, yeah. would that and that would be the Bay of Pigs? That would fall right in that. That time falls period? right in the middle of it. Yes, it does. Fine, let's talk about that because I know we did touch base on it with a previous podcast, but we didn't dive into it to the level that you would know about, right? So sure. let's, let's get into it. Uh, for people that don't know, what, what was the Bay of Pigs? The Bay of Pigs, in its essence, was uh, an expression of um, Cuban exile politics supported by the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations okay. to try to support uh, a paramilitary. It became a paramilitary operation to start uh, an internal civil war or revolution in Cuba to overthrow Fidel Castro. And it was and it was a covert operation at the time? Was it like CIA agents that were working with ex-Cuban yes. militia? Yeah, they were training them uh, in... On American soil? Central America. And and okay. some, some training was going on in Miami. Okay. Uh, and how well. big was the ex-Cuban uh, militia? Like, well, it's pretty big. Significant it's pretty force? big. There's, there, and they're one, all anti-Castro, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, these are people who left the island. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I remember at one time seeing there were like half a million anti-Castro oh, Cubans. And, force. It wasn't like some. No, these people. It wasn't half a million in the force. The force were hundreds, thousands. Okay. I don't. I don't know the exact numbers okay. off the top of my head. Okay, fine. So, so why did the Bay of Pig operation uh, be put in place? Why, why? Why did it start? Like, why? Why? Why, why was there need for it? From from um, the from relationship the between the United States and Fidel Castro broke down. Yeah. In 1959 and 1960, yes. and by fall of 1960, by September, October 1960, no, sorry, by about March of 1960, uh, the Eisenhower administration um, was following um, advice uh, from the CIA uh, and, and beginning these efforts to overthrow Castro. Okay. Uh, this morphed into the Bay of Pigs uh, in April of 1961. Okay. Fine. And then was this operation was passed... Passed on to Kennedy because then because there was a change of, of it was of, passed on to Kennedy. Okay, was he? I'm sure it was passed on, but was he happy with the opera? Like was he? Kennedy kind of things like it was given to me. I have to do it. I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. Kind of thing. Um, no, John okay. Kennedy and his brother Robert were okay. very enthusiastic about covert operations. Okay, uh, they'd read lots of Ian Fleming. They okay, knew Ian Fleming. Okay, uh, they saw it as James Bond. Okay. Uh, the CIA director at the time, so Alan Dulles, was presenting it. Was it thing in their mind that they just um, wanted like, kind they, of, they just they, wanted to be part of something. Most presidents have cool, not have not right? really understood what 
intelligence is, and they've kind of gone into it with an overestimation. Is that something you could not prepare for as a, like a congressman or something you can read? No, you could. Like you can okay. read intelligence history. You know, you can familiarize familiarize yourself with it, and um, yeah, you can. But not everybody has time, especially politicians, to learn everything they need to know about government. Obviously, fair. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so. So then, pay of pigs. So CIA were were act, actively training um, Cuban militia to launch a was it a it was like it was like a beachfront. This was, was an it? amphibious invasion was, with air support. It was intended to be much bigger than it actually was. And was the air support coming directly from the U.S. or was it also Cuban air? No, support? these were old World War II era bombers. Passed that, on they could to be sold. Cuban to, yeah, the Cubans supposedly bought them on the arms market, but they were given to them by the CIA um, and. The whole time this operation, how was it funded? Was it like a like did they funnel money into this? How is it? How how do you fund a covert operation? You well, um, appropriations. Money goes from the uh, U.S. Congress into various sources. It could be a different department or agency in the U.S. It could be the Department of Agriculture. They kind of have a a, a line item that actually the money goes to uh, the CIA. It's covert. It's unreported. It's uh, so it's like all doctored or, or like it's kind no, of funneled into like... It's a, not doctored because okay. Congress is doing it. They're okay. aware of what they're doing and they're doing it this way on purpose. They're just trying to give a, a legal... Uh, they're legally concealing it. Just so, you know, the United States thinks legally. They don't want to be sued. They don't want to be held legally accountable uh, for these things. So they, they make it complicated for someone to actually prove that they did it in a court of law. That's the whole okay. purpose of so it. So basically you have to legally funnel it in a way that doesn't basically open up a sign that says, hey, we're doing this. Yes. Okay, fine. Very interesting. And how much How much did it cost? How much did the whole operation cost? Did we there, actually there, know the figure? There were millions in okay. the Bay of Pigs. I'm not sure exactly how much it was. It was $3 million to overthrow Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 54. Okay. Uh, I think Cuba was... A few times that I'm not sure what the okay. budget was though. So. And what, what and what was what was the plan? Because I, I one of your articles, for example, you have a great drawing. Well, obviously, people can't see that right now. So how, what? what uh, yeah, that's like, the what war. Was the plan, right? That's the war on the rocks piece that yeah. I wrote. Um, they, 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 the war on the rocks got that from somewhere. They get some. Oh, great, was it, it wasn't provided. I didn't do that. No, they oh. get some great images though. That's that's right out of the planning for the Bay of Pigs though. Yes. Okay, that's actually right out of the actual yeah. classified files. The idea was to create a situation on the island of Cuba that that either succeeded in overthrowing Fidel Castro or created the appearance of a civil war. So if a government claims to be a government, but they're not actually in control of the territory they claim to govern, yeah. the international community can intervene. The UN okay, so with peacekeepers. Ma okay, so make it seem like the situation's so bad that the UN, aka, or the US basically has to intervene. Right. And in, in, the, in that way, overthrow it. And in that way, they ease Castro so out for and they hold is, new elections. Okay. And they so bring either, either they'll succeed in overthrowing or they'll make it look so bad that we'll have to overthrow them, but through worldwide legal UN-approved yes. yes. methods. Yes. But then what actually happened? What actually went down? Well, um, they totally underestimated Fidel Castro's position on the island okay. uh, from the support that he enjoyed to the measures he had taken to secure his government by that time. They um, underestimated Fidel Castro's resolve in standing up to them. Did he they, know it was going to happen? Oh, yeah. But how? Because the Cuban government, through their own intelligence service, had penetrated um, the exile community. They, they knew 
uh, about most of this. Okay, so there was no kind of leaks from the CIA or anything, right? This was. I know there wasn't any. No, no, there was nothing from from the yeah, CIA it wasn't itself. It was from but the, the Cuban the intelligence Cuban, okay. were knew of the Cuban exile community. They they penetrated that group and they. they uh, was it, was it, was, it, was it and some of it was or? not really. It was supposed to be like a secret, but the, you know it's clear that this was going on. That this was happening. Like were, were the Cuban the like you know the, the Cuban exiles, the Cuban militia, were they very open about? This going on, or they, 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 were they trained to take that necessary covert steps? Did the CIA, t- or were the CIA only focused on training them militarily, and they didn't focus on actually training them to be more secretive about what they're doing? They got hit overall by the CIA Inspector General Lyman Kirkpatrick. Uh, his his investigation into this, his his review of the situation. Their security was not good, uh, and their counterintelligence was not good either. Uh, the people from the CIA actually running the Bay of Pigs plan were low performers in the agency. They weren't the best people that the agency had, and so overall, they had poor security. Yes. But why were then if they had if they weren't the top of they weren't the top of their game? Why were they given such a big mission? Well, that gets into this question that um, we talked about a little bit earlier about the history of the CIA being a struggle uh, over what it should what, be. Was this literally the, just? A whoops mistake? Well, my interpretation of what I've read is that Richard Helms, who was on the intelligence side, he's an intelligence collector uh, and not a covert operator primarily. Um, There's information in the Inspector General report and in memoirs from Richard Helms and Richard Bissell that he directed these underperformers into the Bay of Pigs uh, operation. Purposely I think so. But what was his agenda? To discredit the covert operations faction. Literally, just discredit. To, to make them embarrass themselves. And, and you know, heads did roll when this oh, wow. ended. Wow. Well, <laughs> That's pretty, I want to stress I, I, that never, this, never is my, this is my read yeah, yeah. of yeah, yeah. the situation. No, uh, but, I'm looking, but this is something that I, would, I never heard of. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. So what did, what... What year? What day, month, and year was the Bay of Pigs exactly? April nineteen sixty-one. I'm not sure what okay. day it was. So, so they lied. It was an amphibious, amphibious assault. It was supposed to be an amphibious su- assault supported by bombers. Okay, so so basically they they roll in with these uh, these transports. They land on the beach. Yeah. And then what happens? They ran out of ammunition. That's what the the was the, the Cuban was the Cuban already waiting for them. Um, they were partly waiting for them, but they responded very quickly. Fidel used telephones, pay. pay pay phones to call people and move them over. He had a militia. He okay. had an armed forces. And was uh, was the, the Cuban, the, ex, uh, the Cuban exiles, were they outnumbered? Was there just... Was there yeah, in the end, they were outnumbered. They were outnumbered and, and they did not spark the general uprising that they believed that they would. So did they actually... So did they actually penetrate into any cities, or was it mostly all the battle was at the beach? They're, they're on the beach. They ran out of so ammunition never, on the beach, and they they surrendered. The ones that were left, they surrendered. Ran out of beach. ammunition completely. That was that was the proximate cause of what happened to them. They they ran out of ammunition. Wow, is that just purely they just were not supplied correctly? This thing was not planned very well. <laughs> the supply <laughs> broke down because the Kennedy had intervened in this planning at the last minute and scaled back the bombers. Yeah, I heard that. All right. Why? Because he was afraid that too many bombers would be too noisy. That was the word that he used. That it would it would look too much like a D-Day invasion of World War II, and it would look too much like the United States was behind it. And he thought fewer aircraft would be less noisy, and it would be more plausible to say the U.S. wasn't behind this. Yeah, that's a weird reason. 
Well, it doesn't seem like a real, like logical reason. You could you could be a conspiracy theorist, which I'm not, and what, say what would the that, conspiracy well, that he wanted to maybe he wanted to get out of the operation and he didn't want to actually cancel it. But maybe if he set those guys up to fail, then they would die or be captured, and then he he wouldn't have been the one who and canceled it. Traced back to him or something. Uh, I don't he just know. didn't want to look back. Yeah, I've seen. You know, there there must be many ways to go into down that rabbit hole and to start wow. speculating about it i don't think it was anything like that at all i think kennedy was just very cautious okay he wanted to scale back the appearance of american involvement and the consequence of that was that he made the bombing force uh weaker than it needed to was be was there any success. bombers at all or just none? there were some okay there okay. were some i was under impression there was none. no there were some uh but the missions were scaled back and the number of bombers were also how scaled long back. how long did the operation last for the actual like couple days it was very quick yeah Interesting. And completely overwhelmed, out of ammunition, not enough air support. They were captured? Captured. Uh, killed? Some. Okay. And the rest, I guess, jailed for life? Jailed. Uh, I think there was an exchange for them later. I haven't looked at that. In were too much any actual American CIA operas within the fighting groups? Or no, they, were, they weren't there. They just let them go on. And None they... were captured. But I do... I don't believe there were any there. I believe there were one or two of their paramilitary trainers from the army Fine. who may have come close. I know that during the... Come close to be captured? Come or... close to going in. Maybe oh, they okay, rode okay. some of the boats kind of out a little ways. I know that during the mongoose period, which followed the Bay of Pigs, okay. um, one or two of the trainers uh, actually did go pretty close to shore with some of the Cuban teams that were infiltrating the island. Do you think... I don't know, this is me talking just out of movie knowledge now... Is there any kind of operative or secret agent, quote unquote, that would that would kill himself if captured? Is that is that a thing? One of those like uh, cyanide pill in in the mouth, kill yourself before getting captured kind of thing. Is, is, that, um, is that real? I know of a case of, of a of a Soviet spy. Uh, yeah, you hear the Soviet. Spy, I, right? I also. Um, I know that I believe that they issued cyanide capsules to the pilots of the U two aircraft. Okay. And I believe that Francis Gary Powers had one, okay. but he didn't take it. I mean, you know, this is a very hard decision it for is, someone yeah, to take. So like he was supposed to take that if he were captured. He didn't take it. Uh, that's the only case I know of where someone was actually assigned this. It must have happened in other cases. Interesting. Uh, there must be others that I don't know about. I don't know of any example where any American intelligence officer took a cyanide capsule to avoid capture. But is there any kind of... I don't want to say a word, but protocol or some kind of like, not maybe not official protocol, but one of those things that your superior would tell you off the books kind of thing. Is that, is that even real? Uh, off the books, anything is possible. Yeah. I, I haven't studied this and I don't really okay. have any good knowledge about this. Okay. This interesting question though. It's one of those things that we'll just, I don't think we'll ever really know. Will we? It's just one of those things that you could theorize or have a conspiracy. But there's no, there's not going to be something like written down on paper about these kind of things, right? I don't know. They they wrote some things down. A lot, a lot of papers are destroyed, though. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there was a protocol, and maybe there was some incidents of of uh, the cyanide pill being. Shot. I don't know. Interesting. I don't know. All right. So the Bay of Pigs last two days um, failed. Um, do the American people get aware of it now after its failure? Yeah, they're aware of it. Pretty. Okay. It's it's public. Okay. Um, it's on the news. Uh, Eisenhower joins Kennedy. I think they were at Camp David. They came out and kind of shared the blame. Yeah, like, sorry, sorry, man, for passing this terrible plan on to you. Um, <laughs> well, Kennedy was more upset with the CIA. He felt they'd misled him. They had overestimated the okay. chances of success. And 
Um, was the reports he got of like the, the planned reports just looked better than the actual situation? Some think? of the people at the very top involved in the planning of this, Richard Bissell, I already mentioned him. They had too much of a can-do attitude and, okay. and not enough of a realistic attitude. They had information from their subordinates that maybe this isn't going to work. We think this might be a bad plan. And their response was, you know, it's going to go forward with or without you. So okay, stop talking negatively. Like All right, that. fine. So how, what happens in the aftermath in terms of the relationship between U.S. and Cuba at this point? How bad is it? It's, it worsens. It worsens. All right. Um, in the funeral uh, for the Cubans who died, uh, Castro's Cubans who died in the aftermath uh, of the Bay of Pigs, Castro declared himself a Marxist-Leninist for life. and He came out uh, far more uh, in the Soviet camp than he was before. Just just get the timelines correct. The Bay of Pigs happened before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Correct? Yes. How many how many years before? About a year and a half. How how much of an impact did it play on the Cuban Missile Crisis? Do you think? Do you think it was the they're intertwined. They're these these are events that are closely causal, connected right? and influencing with each other. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And you'd say that probably the Bay of Pigs pushed Castro further, uh, to make Castro have closer ties with Russia at that point. Well. I think Castro was already moving in that direction, and yeah. there's clearly a relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union that's forming up before the Bay of Pigs. Uh, and you could say that it just gave him a pretext to come out Can and I say, look what you've done. You've, you've made it worse. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? You know, it's Castro's mind and motives and uh, uh, his inner thoughts on these things. I think that he was already moving in that direction. Uh, but this certainly annoyed him. This concerned him. This alarmed him. This worried him. Uh, angered him. All of this wrapped up into one. Yeah, I could definitely. Of course, why wouldn't it? Um, my question is now. So during this time, obviously, terror, re, the, whole, the whole Bay of Pigs, Cuban Missile Crisis, U.S.-Cuban relations are not good. When? How? What year did was there like an improvement in that relationship? Um, why would because I one of your articles is about the US, the U.S. Cuban relations, right? Yeah, and how we can learn from and the lessons that were learned, and how. So how, when when did relationships between these two countries improve to the point where okay. the Cuban army, the Cuban uh, government allowed a military base, sorry, or a prison? I don't know what you want to call it, Guantanamo Bay, to be actually built on Cuba. Right? Well, Guantanamo Bay goes back to 1898. Oh, well, it's, okay. it's a consequence of the Spanish-American War. Cuba, this government of Castro has always been opposed to it. They've always wanted the United States to leave. So the United States is in Guantanamo Bay against the consent of the Cuban government. So, so the actual prison itself was built 19th century. Well, it wasn't used as a prison. It was okay. just a naval base. It was actually a a, a coaling station. It was a, a base for for naval operations. It was key to the anti-submarine warfare effort in World War II. Interesting. And then when did it turn into a prison or holding area? Uh, I think the the, the Carter administration started Carter. using it not as a prison but as a place to detain uh immigrants uh like from haiti or for other countries in the okay. caribbean who they wanted to stop from getting into the united states it wasn't turned into guantanamo bay that we know it as until today until the war on terror yeah that was that was the bush wow. administration so, so basically throughout the whole um cuban missile crisis the bay of pigs was guantanamo bay as a naval command was that operative was that operative was that no they didn't use the bay of pigs it was not any u.s flagged or um, U.S. Um, uh, you know uh, controlled units uh, involved in the Bay of Pigs. No, but was was the actual uh, the the naval was it actually um, operational? Yes. Okay. Well, it was there. There was an Atlantic fleet. There was an Atlantic okay. fleet command, and they were mobilized and up and kind of in the neighborhood. Okay. But I'm sure that they were under very strict instructions. Stay I haven't looked at it. this, but okay. stay out of it. Wow. Don't create 
an incident. And then how how obviously after that incident, was it was it was it obvious right away that the U.S. was was assisting? Was it very obvious? Um, it's not obvious in the sense that you can go to court and prove it, but it's obvious in the sense of kind of common knowledge. And it's yeah, just, with, I mean, to the point that Castro would basically say, "You U.S. Have done, are doing this to me." This is your fault. I blame you, kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah, and and you had Kennedy and okay. Eisenhower accepting responsibility okay. for the failure in there. So, how receptive was Castro and his government on allowing um, Guantanamo Bay to stay operational? They're not. They're opposed to it. They want okay. it. The, the U.S. according to the agreement pays rent okay. uh, for for the land there, uh, and Castro says that he <clears throat> cashed that check. The very first time he got it after 1959 by mistake, and ever okay. since then he has refused to cash the checks. But was there any ever any effort from his militia to to get in on? No, okay. he doesn't want to start an open war with the United okay. States either. But how about then during the Cuban Missile Crisis, right, where there's a direct threat and there's there's military action, right, and it's almost like a standoff. How was well? Fidel Castro went off the deep end during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he asked. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev in the Soviet Union yeah. to initiate a nuclear attack against the United States. Yeah, no, I'm saying in terms of actually, I'm actually trying to focus on Guantanamo Bay itself. Was was there any kind of any kind of military operation in there? Would anything happen? Or no, it was kind of kept. No, there's never been a clash between the U.S. forces on Guantanamo and the Cuban government. Okay, I thought I thought logically there would be because of the situation. No, if there is, it's very low level. It's okay. maybe you know uh, forward deployed troops. Brushing against each other, perhaps, but there's no, there's never been any attack or uh, move uh, from one side against the other. Okay, interesting. There was one you you, you used a term that I, I I wasn't aware. You said the mongoose, something mongoose arrow or something. mongoose. Yeah, can you, can you can you clarify that? After the Bay of Pigs, um, uh, John Kennedy used his brother Robert Kennedy okay. and uh, a major general. Was it named, a congressman? What was Robert Kennedy? He was the attorney general. Attorney general. Uh, but think of him as kind of like. His brother is a very close advisor, yeah. uh, and he kind of took over the CIA's covert operations against Cuba okay. after the Bay of Pigs. Uh, and they had a major general named Edward Lansdale. They were running kind of a lower-level uh, 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 operation that was meant to do the same thing. It was meant to harass. It okay. was meant to kind of sabotage, meant to overthrow, meant to assassinate uh, wow. Fidel Castro. So it was uh, still continuous. This uh, continued after the Bay of Pigs. Uh, wow. it, it it really only cut off after the assassination of JFK. It stopped abruptly because Lyndon Johnson um, didn't agree with it. He wasn't for oh, it. Oh, wow. Interesting. So how much... So just, just to clarify, so the hierarchy of the CIA, there's a, there's, a, there's a director at the top, right? That's right. Okay, and he reports directly to the president? He reports to the National Security Act Council to the president. Okay, fine. But then does... And the president has full right to dictate any, um, you know procedures or, or things like you can directly like contact this director and okay say, don't do this do that is it, is uh, that up until 1975 yeah. the president of the united states is basically solely governing the cia well, after so 1975 it's, it's shared uh between the u.s and congress there's reporting now the cia reports okay. to congress uh after 75 okay but so basically if any president any sitting president decides he wants to carry out a um, secret operation. He has to go to Congress to get approved. After seventy-five, yeah. After seventy-five, before right. seventy-five, yeah, yeah. it's all just the president. Wow. Interesting times. All right, cool. Um, I want to jump into um, just a few things. Just uh, Warren Rocks. This is a, this is a, it's a Texan publication, right? 
it's, it's affiliated with the Texas National Security Network. It's a startup in D.C., uh, the publisher, Ryan Evans. Okay. It's a really fun uh, uh, online magazine. It's for no, I, yeah, I checked it out. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, and did they reach out to you or you were you had close ties? Uh, to the public? I, I knew someone who was on the editorial staff there okay. uh, and he invited me to start writing for them. We had a good run. Okay. Uh, like you I still said, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I haven't written anything for a year, okay. year and a half. Because there's some really interesting stuff on there. Yeah, thanks. No, it was really, that, that's... Well, you're the one who's read it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. Whoever's out there uh, listening, I'll put the link as well. Uh, War on the Rocks. Dot com. Um, James Lockhart has a whole area as around nine uh, publications. Check it out. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, just to plug it, it's uh, it's it's a really exciting publication. It yeah. has a lot of practitioners, a lot of high ranking military officers, a lot of very smart uh, intellectuals writing. No, it's, it's legit. Um, it's not like it's not like some person. This is legit. No, people this is who very know legit. their this stuff. Is, yeah, yeah. Who have all their sources. No, these are professionals, and some of them yeah. are very well connected with yeah. uh, government. So whoever's listening, definitely check it out. Worth the read. I promise you, I read two of them, and they were they were just a fun read. Honestly, it's just it's just fun to read about that. Um, let's let's just talk about some of the publications. I know it's maybe not directly what we're talking about, but there's a couple I didn't read. I would really like to, so I don't want to dive into it because I don't want to ruin my. If you could just give me a little, I don't know, a little uh, synopsis. For example, like Andrew Jackson's Marco Polo. What was that talk about? That's a that's just a book review. That's a straight oh, book, really, review. Yeah, book review. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a very fun uh, oh, book review. I'm, I'm going to go through all these. So yeah, I, okay. I, I read uh, Spy vs. Spy, and I read The Mysterious Building of the CIA, and those were honestly just awesome reads. Thanks. They were actually guys. You have to check it out. It's, it's honestly it, like you know how you you love reading like you know fiction books and they keep you like kind of like you're stuck to the pages. That's the same kind of feel. It's just really well written, which is awesome. Um. Cool. Uh, one thing I just want to talk to you about, um, obviously there's a lot of conspiracy theories going around. Like there's thousands of them, right? Yes. Do any of them, let's say for example, the big, the biggest one that comes to mind is like the big 9-11 conspiracy theory, right? It was like uh, a lot of people say it was a false flag operation. The CIA did it, orchestrated to start a war of terror. How much is that is complete crockery? And is there any kind of truth to that from your professional opinion that particular one is yeah. complete crockery complete crockery yes uh osama bin laden perpetrated 9-11 interesting period full stop and but some of it but one thing i i found out recently so recently i found out something i also talked to my previous podcast that there was so during charlie wilson's war which was the war of yeah. Afghanistan, the, the yeah. soviets right yeah there, was some of Laden? What did he ever receive any supplies or military uh, assistance to help fight the Soviets at that time? Uh, I haven't gotten into this in, in direct detail. Okay. I I, I want to say that yes, he he did. Okay. That he was among those uh, among the ones we call it the Mujahideen yeah. in Afghanistan who we were supporting uh, in a war, and we were we were definitely cultivating the image that this is a religious war okay. uh, of people of the book. Uh, and we're supporting you, even though we're Christians, we're still of the book, yeah, you're, yeah. you know, uh, against kind of a godless, atheistic, communist invader. Yeah. Uh, and we supported a, a great deal of, of people who came to Afghanistan to fight uh, and trained them, armed them. I'm sure um, that um, bin Laden was one of them. Yeah. I don't know that he was a high ranking one or that he had direct contact yeah. with uh, any of these CIA funds or weapons. Um, 
But this is this would probably be in the 9-11 Commission Report yeah. or some of the good literature uh, on it. Have you ever delved into, uh, like out of your own personal curiosity, into the 9-11, into 9-11 and the aftermath? No, not much. I, I've, I've read some. I'm fascinated by it. I yeah. would love to get into it more. But I, I'm my professional time is really consumed uh, with the Cold War. Fair enough. Do you get approached a lot about it? About 9-11? Yeah. No, you, not really. Your students ever ask you about it? Yes, they do. Okay. Fine. They do. I tell them what I know. Okay, um, fair enough. Uh, and I, I try to direct them to where they can go for good information. Interesting. It's I find it very interesting. Like, I, like, I I understand the appeal of conspiracy theories. There's an appeal. They're fun. You get to be part of their little group, and you get to talk about it. But I, I'm a person I believe in facts. So whenever I look at conspiracy theories, I'm like, all right, fine. It's fun to think about it. But is there any solid information? And most of the time, it's no. Right. Correct. But I don't know. 9-11. But yeah, you hesitate to make a sweeping yeah, right? conclusion and say they're all false because you never know. Because you, you see so many different... Like you, I can only see what I see, right? And obviously media is biased it, depending on where you read your media. And it's just, I don't know. Like I, uh, The scientific part of me it says, you know what? Complete crockery. Throw it aside. Let's move on. But you look at stuff like... You know, when you watch these things like, oh yeah, the columns were cut in a weird way or of 9-11, right? Yeah. And that yeah. third building. There was yeah. a third building that fell on its own. Yeah. Is, is that even real? Was there a third Berlin flag um, on I, I don't know. How, I mean, the, is, you know? the one that I looked at in some detail was uh, uh, this claim that the bullet that shot JFK behaved in some strange way. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was a ball round. If it was a ball round, if it's a rifle okay, ball so round. Have you studied that? The JFK I haven't second? studied it, but I know as a former Marine that a ball round from a rifle does bounce around like a ball. That's why it's called a ball round. Do you know, do you know the, are you aware of the Joe Rogan podcast? No. Okay. Uh, Joe Rogan is. Um, I'll just pick a Troy. Awesome podcast. Check it out. He is a ex MMA guy who was a you know he's a martial art fighter who basically started making a podcast between him and his friends talking to interesting people. Very right. similar thoughts. And he got famous and famous because he started so long ago and he has millions of people to watch him every day. Okay. And he gets people from all kinds of, of aspects of the world. Right. Sounds cool. Um, I'll definitely check it out. It's called the Joe Rogan Experience. There was one episode. He brings a four. He brings a a colleague and a friend of his who is Cuban. And he brings an author. I think his name's T.G. Mills. I don't know if you're. I don't know if you know him. No. And he, he he's a he's an Irish author who delved deeply into Cuban uh, history, Cuban culture to a point that he married a Cuban. He speaks. He's he's has his native speaker now of Spanish, and he loves it. Right. And his book talks about um, post um, Cuban Missile Crisis, emigrants into the U.S. from from Cuba. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how there's many theories that the JFK assassination was led by Cuban uh, militia out of anger for the failure of the Bay of Pigs. Have All you right. ever studied that or looked into uh, that? No. Uh, the, the theories of who assassinated JFK are many. Okay. Uh, and I haven't found a single one of them that trumps the evidence that I have that says okay. that Lee Harvey Oswald shot okay. JFK right. uh, on his own. All right. Um, was there, but was there any backlash from the Cuban com com uh, community to the U.S. or the, to the CIA or to JFK for the failure of the Bay of Pigs? Yeah, many in the uh, Cuban exile community were angry with Kennedy. They blamed uh, him some in the CIA were angry with Kennedy too. They believed that he had let them down, that he'd failed to support uh, the operation, uh, and that some seemed to believe uh, it was a very bad belief on their part that if the operation started going bad, that Kennedy would order the Navy to come in. Uh, and, and overthrow Castro. And uh, if that was their belief, they never checked that out. They never confirmed it. And it's a bad assumption to think that a president is going to take a failing covert operation and have the U.S. military 
you know, pull the chestnuts out of the fire. That's that's wow. uh, that was bad, bad assumption on their part. Interesting. Was there any kind of protests within the American Cuban um, society against the government at that point? Or I imagine, but I don't know. Okay, there's okay nothing, nothing significant that made a bit. Not not anything that's caught my attention. Interesting. Looking at it from the Can point of view question. that I do. You you obviously study a very interesting. Uh, focus and time and you always do you ever delve into not like the cia in terms of like not in this period like in other periods or just in general my question comes up basically i'm trying to get to the point is has ever like just made you like more wary as a person how much has your professional studies impacted your personal life what do you mean by made me wary i'm not wary like i don't know like I don't, I don't know how to say this. It's, it's weird. It's, it's, it's weird to say like, like be careful what you say on the phone or like you're, you're being, oh, tired. Yeah. like, is there any kind of impact of your, no, what you, okay. Uh, I live, you know, I live and write and research and operate uh, in the United States. The first mm-hmm. amendment protection gives me a blanket protection for anything. And I don't, knowing what I know of the intelligence community, they don't, they don't operate in that way. Okay. The way you, the, this malicious. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, just, I'm just talking as a layman. This is how we would think, right? Right. When you watch right. enough movies and shows, you think, oh my God, if there's someone says something bad, he's going to get contacted one day. I always have, you know, I had, when I was in, living in Brazil, that somehow someone in the neighborhood saw me burning some papers. Uh, <laughs> and I just did that for, for identity theft, right? I mean, yeah, these yeah, papers yeah. have my Fair name and, data, and and just before I leave the country, I just don't want to throw them away. So I burned them and got rid of them. And <laughs> They started spreading the word around. He was burning papers. He's a CIA agent. And they started, so you know, and I said, well, no, I'm not. And they said, well, that's what you would say, wouldn't it be? Said, <laughs> that's true. But let me ask you this, because I was living in a rural place in the Brazilian Northeast on the beach. Yeah. Really nice. What makes you think the CIA would be interested in sending people here to spy on you guys? Like, yeah, you, there's nothing significant. This is not the center of Brazilian military strategy. This is not the foreign relations ministry, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and so people who think the way that you're thinking, like, why, why, why would it's I not, ever think? I'm thinking, well, the, the way, way that you're suggesting yeah, or throwing out there. Yeah, 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 I get it. But my, my answer to that is um, there are a lot of historians like me who are writing intelligence of history. Course, and sure. They don't. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not. They, they they have no interest in what I'm yeah, writing. Something sure. that's you know 30, it's 40 years back. It's classified. It's not yeah, I'm not working with anything. Yeah, yeah. That's, no, no, obviously, I don't personally think this, but I, I try to get into the minds of the average person, right? Or like, I'll tell you why. Coming from an Arab background, right? Arabs are we are notorious of thinking anyone who is in any kind of position in Western within an Arab world has some CIA backing. Like yeah. You don't believe how many times as a kid growing up, yeah. I would hear, oh yeah, your principal's American, he's definitely CIA, <laughs> right? Or it's a serious, or your professor in that university, the American professor, he's definitely CIA. And, and they put an officer in charge of being the principal of your school. You yeah, yeah, and for yeah. me, like, obviously you're growing up, you're a kid, right? You're like, okay, fine. And obviously now when I'm adult, I look back at it and I laugh. That those are silly, silly thoughts. There's no factual, but you, I, I, you should just know it. It's like in the thoughts of the average, uh, I don't want to say ethnic, but the average, like for example, you know, within this, especially within this region or anyone, anyone who's been in areas of conflict, I would say there's, there, there's that thought that he's a position of power. He's a CIA hundred percent. Yeah. And you hear, and I, I used to hear all the time yeah. in university. I just find it really funny. And there's obviously, there's no factual thoughts about it. No. Yeah. I just want to, I'm just, I'm just trying to, they're, um, you know, in the U S the intelligence community is more low profile. They're there, they're around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're certainly not operating domestically against Americans. Maybe the FBI, if, if it comes up yeah, in yeah. a legitimate investigation or the same thing in the, 
uh, United Kingdom with uh, MI5 internally. But yeah. what you're thinking of is like the KGB, yeah. which has informers all over exactly. society. And yeah, they don't really have. No, I've I've seen nothing like that yeah, yeah. in no, Western I, I, European I've or, or like U.S. countries in terms of things I've read or actual like you know scholarly work. It's just because even the average person, right? Even in the states, when I talk to an average person, is that media really shapes your thoughts? Yes, it does. Yes, um, it does. And it's so sometimes it's so far from the truth that you think something's like you're so sure of it. Yeah, because I've seen it. I've read it, and rather there's no truth behind it. You know, it. And, and we've all, as a community, a world community, yeah. all of us, have fallen into a serious problem lately yeah. because of this, that we have a hard time telling the difference between an accusation and a fact. 100%. And so yeah. it's becoming confused. It's, it's becoming so muddled. and, and um, even, even, even looking back at my growth, my, I'm talking about personally, I would grow up, or I, people around me, we'd all grow up with the idea, if it's on the news, it has to be real. Or if you see it on TV, it has to be true. And only till you get to a point where you're growing, you're growing your intelligence and you start to question things as a person, you start to look back, no, it's not true. That news, newspapers, um, books, everything has a bias. Even places like CNN, BBC, they all have biases. Yeah, yeah. And, every single thing has yeah, a bias. But it's, just, right. it's just so funny. Like for me, for example, when I speak personally, up until maybe my early 20s, that I would, I would not question these things. You know what I mean? And then I think as you grow as a person and as you grow as, as, as and when you grow in your intelligence, you start to question things like that. And it's just funny looking back at it. At like, it's like, you know, people I used to grow up with used to think that everyone around you CIA, used to watch TV, all these CIA things going on, especially if you watch like, you know, biased news. Movies are not helping because movies shows Mission Impossible, James Bond, or right. crazy covert operations, right. secret society. Right. And you realize it's really not like that. Or it's actually not as as complicated as it really seems, right? Sometimes. I mean, you have to look at all this on a case-by-case yeah, basis. Sure. And what the, the one thing that I try to get through the most to the students I work with yeah. um, is it's an, a message from the enlightenment. You, yeah. know, you don't have to accept any information from any source, yeah. even me. Um, question, question everything. Totally but that doesn't mean that people are necessarily wrong yeah. or that just, you know, and especially because something has a bias that that means that there's a problem. The, the key is to understand what the bias is and then use that to work with the information yourself. Yeah. Uh, and to everything has pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses. Um, don't necessarily be opposed to everything and think, well, if it's an official source, it must be a lie. That's that's a that's a problem too. Or yeah. even if something has a lot of flaws and a lot of problems, maybe it has some good points in it also. I mean, there's a lot of things to do with information. The thing to do is to relax, settle down, yeah. not be dogmatic, uh, and try to do the best you can to untangle it, figure out what it is, uh, and go from there. Definitely. The, way I, the reason I say is because I find it's very reflective on, for example, my industry, right? So I, I work in the media industry, right? When you first start a media industry, you really start with no knowledge of anything, right? It's not something you learn. It's not something that was re, was taught uh, in university when I was studying. It's recently taught now. So you, for example, you believe that everything that Google and Facebook do and say is 100% correct. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I once I started rising within the ranks, I started learning, I realized they know nothing. Like, for Well, example, they don't even know that they're doing these self serving google searches like yeah. give me a google article that shows that vaccines uh yeah. cause autism uh and then of course they get hits from insane <laughs> people and they say well there it is you know it's on google exactly like uh, for example I would, for example every time you have a problem in digital i'd be like okay 
I would think that Facebook and Google, from an advertising point of view, know everything. So my account manager in Google knows everything because they, Google yeah. and Facebook are the gods of gods of, yeah. of, of the media world. Yeah. Then you start talking to these people and you realize they're just an average person sitting behind a desk who knows probably less than you do. Right. He just happens to work at a company that has given this right. air of superiority. Well, we see things in print yeah. or we see things uh, on TV or hear it on the radio and it has a feeling of legitimacy. Yeah, exactly. Because it's being published. It's a thing. So, yeah, not all of these things are being edited or peer-reviewed or overseen by exactly. smarter people or yeah. challenged or questioned. Uh, yeah, you have to keep that in mind. I'm sorry, we went on a bit on that tangent. Uh, there was one topic that I saw um, within your scope and you talk about it, but I would like to dive into who this person is and his impact. Lieutenant General Vernon Walters. Ah, my favorite subject. Yeah. So who 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 is he? And um, all right, what period of time was he impacting? Uh... This is my post book research project. Okay. Uh, I'm working on kind of a biography of him. Is this and... the book that's coming out? No. Okay. This is a book that's in production. Okay. I'm writing and researching it right now. Okay. Cool. Um, he's a very influential person. Okay. He's kind of behind the scenes, not that well known. He was okay. never really a principal actor in the Cold War, okay. but he was always one step next to principal actors. Okay. And he was there from the beginning of, he was really there from the Second World War until the very end of it. Okay. Why was this so? He was one of those people with, uh, you know, a monstrous talent for languages. Okay. He could pick up languages very quickly and speak very fluently, the slang, all of it, uh, and speak with native speakers and they couldn't tell the difference. Um, and so American policymakers valued this. They used him as a translator, as someone to accompany them uh, on a trip to Brazil, uh, on a trip to Russia, whatever. Eisenhower joked once he had Walters with him in a plane that Walters was going to be translating uh, in some European country, I forget which one, uh, where they spoke a language that Walters didn't have. And Eisenhower told his advisor, well, just give Walters a grammar. Uh, and then by the time the plane lands, he'll be fluent in this language. And it's really not that much of an exaggeration with wow. Vernon Walters. So did he rise in the ranks? So when did he start his military career? He enlisted in the Army uh, in the Second World War. He had a high school education. He okay. never went to college. Um, uh, he started as a private soldier. By the okay. end of the war, he was a captain. Oh, wow. Uh, and he was serving uh, in the Fifth Army in Italy. He was advising uh, the commanding general uh, of that, and he was liaising okay. with the Brazilian Expeditionary Force there. He had great friends in the Brazilian Army during the Second World War oh, wow. that served him well uh, right. afterwards. Okay, then how did he continue? So he was a captain. How did he get to become a lieutenant Well, he, he was working as a military attache. He was working okay. in the embassies, uh, and his language abilities just kept him in the spotlight. People like Avril Harriman, people like Richard Nixon, uh, 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 everyone really up until so he was uh, just naturally gifted at language. Some people are just naturally gifted. At things, right? Some people just figure it out. Uh, he was yeah. one of them without yeah. any real effort. Well, they say there's a there's a part of the brain that controls languages, I guess, and it's, if that part's lar larger, you you have a higher propensity to learn languages. Could be. He also grew up in Europe. He went to high school okay. in Europe, and so he went to uh, different schools speaking English, French, uh, and some German. Was that unique in his time? Was that, was I don't that, think so. Okay. I think there have always been people like you were saying that you moved around a lot. Yeah, but uh, saying like during too. that specific time period, right? Um, I think after the late 19th century, there would be a lot of Americans okay. living in different Fair. countries and like, and maybe because when he moved around as an elementary student, he learned how to learn languages. I think that's the key to understanding him. That's very interesting. Uh, and then from there, he just branched out. He so he three. just kept basically growing in the ranks, growing in in, uh, in positions purely because he was. He was so, 
um, if, I don't know, so beneficial. Indispensable. In the, yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Until a point that he became lieutenant general. Yeah. In terms of hierarchy, how high is lieutenant general? It's three stars. Three stars. Uh, it's almost at the top. What, what, who, does he, what, who, would, who would a lieutenant general report to? Uh, in his case, policymakers. But I guess if you're going by a strict chain of command, yeah. he'd report to a four-star uh, general. Wow. Okay, so that's, that's significantly high up. It's it's at the highest wow. uh, level. All right, cool. So what so what made him? Um, so what what kind of things did he impact during the Cold War? So he was he was very impactful during this period of time, right? Well, um, I'm using him because his career shows the limitations of American influence okay. in Latin America during the Cold War. In what way? And it's it's really important to stress that his particular career shows the limitations because people saw him as such an influential okay. person because of his proximity to these people. He was really front row seats for almost anything of significance in the cold war. Wow. You name it. And he was, he was probably there. Uh, and so there've been a lot of conspiracies about him. Like well, he if like he's there, maybe the he's back. causing these things. <laughs> maybe he's behind it. Maybe he's giving secret instructions to the Brazilian armies to overthrow João Goulart in 1964. Uh, and he, of course, denied it. He says that wasn't true at all. But of course, um, he would deny it. <laughs> of of course, he would deny it. Would say. Uh, but then I would say, well, can you show me the evidence that shows that he did what yeah. you're alleging he may have done? And well, no, I can't. Uh, and that leaves us in a position where we say, well, we make conclusions based on the evidence that we have that gives of establishing things. Um, I'm, I'm making the argument that he's, and I'll especially stress here with you, the Falklands War, you know, this war yes. between Britain and Argentina. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, there was an American mission. Lieutenant General Walters was part of it. So what year was that? Just because 82. 82. Okay. Um, about three months in 1982, the summer for us in the Northern Hemisphere, okay. spring and the summer. And how old was Lieutenant uh, General Walter this time? Oh, that's a good question. He was serving the Reagan administration as a roving ambassador. He must have been in his 60s. He was a captain while he was young. Yeah. He was in his 20s, maybe? I'd, yeah. And I'd say he was probably in his 60s when he was okay, fun. doing cool. this. The Reagan administration sent Walters, or Walters was accompanying the Secretary of State, okay. Alexander Haig, on a mission to try to get the Argentines and the Brits to back off and not go to war. And they okay. pulled out full stop. They tried flattering, persuading, even threatening the Argentines. Okay. They tried pleading with the British. Uh, and in the end, they just you know shrugged their, uh, they threw their hands in the air and complained that we don't have influence over the British or the Argentines in this situation. Uh, we couldn't stop the war. Uh, and they basically waged the war on their own terms. Just, just a bit of backstory for people who don't know. Um, because by the way, the average person listening might not know a lot of the history we're talking about. So, why? Wh how did the Argentine and how did Falkland War start? What was the reason behind it? Um, the British had been in possession of the Falkland Islands, which are off the coast of Buenos Aires, um, in the South Atlantic since the 1830s. Wow. Okay. Uh, when Argentina first became independent, <clears throat> it was not in a, a strong position. It took Argentina a while to get their act together and be. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, a good government and, with control. And were the Falklands Florida. a strategic position? Is that well, what they were Well, not really, but they would like to say that it, it was because it, it does, it is near the um, um, the Magellan Straits okay. uh, at the end of South America. It, it became very strategically unimportant after the Panama Canal was created. Okay, fine. Most fine. people okay, go cool. through the Panama Canal. They prefer that. Okay. And was the U.S. just intervening just basically to stop a war? The U.S. was intervening to try to stop a war. Okay. The U.S. had a Cold War interest in keeping Britain an anti-communist ally and a NATO ally. Focus uh, on the task at hand, basically. Well, and, and not diverting its resources to fighting a war with another anti-communist ally, Argentina, 
that was helping the U.S. Yeah. anti-communist effort in Central America. Okay. Uh, so the U.S. wanted to try to just don't rock the boat. I get it. Please don't fight each other. So, Please don't. So the Argentinian government was working alongside the U.S. in Central uh, America, in Central America. Yeah, yeah. against Nicaragua. Okay. And then, and then that's basically it. Was okay. Fine, it makes sense. Why would they want not? They don't want a war because they're both England and we've and, got and a good thing right yeah, now. Yeah, two allies that's, going that's on. Not, you don't want your allies yeah, fighting, yeah, right? Yeah, because they'll just basically. That's essentially right. Okay, makes sense. All right, cool. And then what happened? It just didn't work out. Um, they weren't able to resolve their differences. They went to war. The Argentines invaded, thinking that basically it would be over really quickly. They thought the British wouldn't respond. Uh, and some of them believed that the Americans might support them against Britain yeah. uh, because of their cooperation in Central America. Who was the prime minister at the time? Was it Margaret Thatcher? Margaret Thatcher. Okay. Yeah, yeah and she wasn't going to accept this for one. What, what was her nickname? She had a nickname, right? Something like Iron that. Lady. Yeah, something like that, right? Because yeah, she was so. Thatcher for yeah, because she was a very hardened person. She wasn't a very. Uh, she was a tough prime minister. Yeah. There's no question about that. Very interesting. Um, interesting. So then basically, General Walters was. He was. He was trying to assist this intervention yeah. of the U.S. to try to calm down. Okay. Haig and others in the Reagan administration were okay. really proud of him. They said, you know, because of his language, they said, he'll go down there. Yeah. He'll go down to Buenos Aires. He'll speak Spanish military slang and scare the hell out of those generals. <laughs> and he, actually, exact, he actually went down he there. He did. He, he got a bear hug from uh, General Galtieri. Okay. Uh, you know, Walters, we understand each other as generals, but damn it, you can't ask me to take down that flag. Sure. Okay. Know? Uh, so all the influence that he had was it, it was none in the end. It was none. He had more influence with people in Washington than he did with anyone anywhere else. Interesting. Uh, outside. So after that, was that was that at the end of his career? No. no. Okay. He continued. He became um, uh, after roving ambassador. He was the Reagan administration's um, representative to the UN. Okay. Wow. Uh, okay. In the late 1980s, okay. and then he became uh, the Bush administration. Bush, the father. Yeah. The Bush administration. Didn't go for ambassador to, to West Germany. Okay. Uh, and that was the end of his career after after that. He became very Is old. he still alive or did he pass away? No, he died 2003-ish. Did you ever talk to him? Never. Okay. Never. But I have some of his diaries. I feel like I know him. Wow. Did you get it from his estate? I got it from, he left his diaries with a library, in, uh, a government library in the U.S. And I've Fantastic. got some of them. Did you ever get in contact with his children? No. No. Okay, interesting. I wouldn't need to, though. I have enough information from him. No, just for the sake of a conversation. I, you know what? I was always very interested in your dad. I, I studied. And you know what? Ever want to talk about it? Or, I don't know, yeah, sure. Of course, I would love to. Yeah. Something like that would be um, would be great. But I have so much information from so many who knew him, yeah. uh, and information that he left. He left two published books. Okay. Um, these diaries. He's all over the U.S. declassified record, um, and there are others. There, been, there was a seminar uh, in the National Intelligence University where they basically talked about him, and all these people uh, talked about various aspects of his career. And most of them had known him at that time. Uh, I feel like I know him as well as an historian can know anybody they study. Um, is that, is that so enough. interesting? Is that enough. so interesting? You know this person so well, but he's not around anymore. But you just know him, this specific person. Is that such an interesting, such an interesting thought? Yeah. Well, I mean, with the caveat that I know yeah. him as a public, yeah, yeah the public course. him. I don't know his privacy. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. and I'm not interested in, no, in, of course. in any of that either. So when I say I know him, I mean I know him yeah, as, yeah, a, of as a military officer. That's very interesting. Him. Obviously, he was a, a significant individual. During, yes. during very tough times. Very so. Very much so. Would you say that he impacted the leadership after him, like the other, like the ones that came after him, the other lieutenant general, other three-star generals? Uh, Has he left a lasting impact that we see today? Or Well, people who, who um, enter the intelligence profession in the U.S. and people who are army attaches or even defense attaches, 
um, see him as a as a role model. Yeah. Wow. He did it right, and so what can we learn from his career, and how can we? Be what like would him? you think? What would you say is the top? Or, or, it's hard to quantify a number. I'm not gonna say top three, but what do you think would the top lessons that you could learn from this individual? Well, I don't know if anybody, if too many people can apply them, but uh, if you can pick up languages. Okay. If you can really pick up languages fluently, so okay, uh, you will be very valuable to people. Interesting. That's number one. He had an attitude of great flexibility. He uh, a, a humble attitude. Um, he was always, as I said, just one step back. He never jumped into the spotlight. Um, he was very respectful to people. People uh, liked that, mm -hmm. uh, and he continually rose through the ranks because of this. Wow, it's very interesting. It must have been an interesting individual. What, what books does he have? You said he has two books, right? He has two memoirs. One two of memoirs. them is called The Mighty and the Meek. Okay. That goes by personality to personality of the people that he knew. Interesting. Uh, and the other one is called Silent Missions, which is a standard chronological narrative of his life from... Worth a read? They're, they're all worth a read. Okay, I love reading I'll memoirs. Check the, I'll they're, check them out. I'll check them great. out for sure. Sounds awesome. Guys, check them out, whoever's listening. All right, awesome. Um, I think that basically wraps up all our questions, unless you want to highlight anything. Do you want to discuss... Your upcoming works, anything like that? Or you... No, that's it. That's what that, that feels awesome. good for now. Cool. And if people want to read more about, if people want to read your publications, okay. Obviously, we talked about the War on the Rocks website. Yeah. Where else can people reach out if they want to? Um, you can go to my my uh, University of Arizona website. That's, okay. Uh, uh, History Arizona Edu backslash Lockhart. That's got right, my cool. CV and it keeps you up to date. All right, either way, I'll I'll add links to everything. Yeah, great. At the bottom. Great. So yeah, guys, definitely check out. Um, for, for off the bat, for the average person just interested in this stuff, go to War on the Rocks and read all eight um articles and or reviews that Doctor uh, James Lockhart wrote. There, trust me, especially two of them I read. Fantastic. Definitely read them, and we can't wait for your book. That's going to be really interesting. Thanks. Um, so Q2 2019. Right? Awesome. So we'll touch base then. Discuss that. All right. maybe, we can, maybe we can have another one where we can discuss the book. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. And yeah, stay tuned. And uh, hope to see you guys again soon. Take it easy.